Over the past few decades, you've probably seen or heard the brilliant, insightful reporting of Jeremy Bowen. He's been the BBC's Middle East correspondent and editor in the region. His podcast, Our Man in the Middle East, has a bit of a cult following as it takes listeners to meet everyday men and women and powerful leaders whose motives, brutal and benign, uh, mean they jostle for control. Now, the sheer sweep of cultural difference between, say, Erdogan's Turkey and Iran, the success of the Persian Empire, is both forbidding and fascinating to the average Australian, I think. So I'm delighted to welcome Jeremy to Saturday Extra to chat about his related book, The Making of the Modern Middle East. It offers a rare personal overview of his work, and it coincides, of course, with the 20th anniversary of the US-led invasion of Iraq, and that surprising new deal brokered by China between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Hello there, Jeremy. Yeah, hi, how are you? Good. Now, did you see that deal coming at all? I knew that the uh, Iranians and the Saudis had been talking. They'd have five rounds of talks over a period of years, and that was partly brokered by Iraq and partly brokered by Oman. But it took the Chinese, who are very important trading partners of both countries, to take the whole thing over the line. So it's, uh, yeah, it's potentially a very interesting new development. I mean, somebody that I read said, Iran, some diplomat, Iran's rise is inevitable. When it happens, the Middle East will be a different place. Now, is that a reasonably accurate sort of um, prophecy? Well, Iran has been put into a special category by, certainly by the Western world, since the Islamic Revolution. And if you think, if you look back, before that, the days of the Shah, who was overthrown in 1979, then that's what seemed to be happening. It was the uh, the darling poster child of the Americans, and they had an alliance with Israel, mm. a wealthy country, loads of oil, gas, uh, big, strategic, large population, amazing history, great sense of self in Iran, all of those things, but a lot of the outside perceptions of Iran, quite rightly, changed after the Islamic Revolution, and the Americans particularly have had this, you know, after if older listeners may remember the hostage crisis when uh, during the Islamic Revolution, uh, a lot of American diplomats were held for a long time. Well, bedeviled uh, the Jimmy Carter, didn't it? Yeah. Mm. yeah, it did, exactly. And, uh, and since then, I think the Americans have had a very dysfunctional attitude towards Iran, but it may rise again. It has a lot of potential. It's a, it's actually a wonderful country in so many ways, and with a population that is, I don't get to go there very often because they don't give the BBC visas anymore. But I have been in the past, and what really strikes you, say, if you go to Tehran, is that most of the population just getting on with their daily lives. It's not overtly religious. In fact, it feels a lot less overtly Islamic there than if you walk through, I don't know, Cairo or Amman or one of the Arab cities. Mm. And very, you know, contemporary in many ways is um, is what I've seen a lot of very good coverage, like really, really up to date, you know, just on the cusp of, <laughs> of really getting into all that is regarded as uh, um, at the cutting edge, you know, in the West. Yeah, but with the, the one problem is that they've got this uh, repressive government, this the Islamic regime, which, uh, you know, it's been well publicized over the last months. It puts big restrictions on dress codes for women. 
they don't women don't have the restrictions on education and things like that that you've seen in Afghanistan it's not like mm -hmm. that uh, but the and certainly in the way that people comport themselves and dress uh, that's something which is legislated against and also it's uh, it's a regime which is prepared to shoot its own people in the streets if they disagree with it. I don't necessarily, Jeremy, want to stick with all the big macro issues of the Middle East, though they're there in your book, The Relentless Conflicts Over Your 30 Years. I notice you did step back, though, for a while from frontline reporting in the early 2000s. Could you outline why, please? Well, I'll tell you, it was a number of reasons. I'd always thought I turned 40 in 2000. And I always thought, well, when I get to 40, I might get a grown-up job. And it so happened that I was uh, offered a job to be the, the presenter, the anchor of the BBC's main morning TV program. And it was a new, interesting, potentially thing to do. I was quite flattered. I, I felt after years on the road at that point that I wouldn't mind doing something a bit different. We... You know, we were we we're about to have our first kid and things like that. But also something then dreadful happened, which was in 2000, one of the last... I'd been, I'd been based in the Middle East at that point, living there for five, six years. Uh, I was working with a Lebanese guy, Abed Takush, in South Lebanon in 2000, and uh, the Israelis opened fire across the border and hit his car that i just got out of. And he was still in it. And they hit it with a tank shell and he was killed. And the next day as well, a couple of friends of mine who I'd known throughout the wars in Bosnia in the 1990s were killed in Sierra Leone. And I just thought, I'm not sure I want to do this anymore. In fact, I know I don't want to do this anymore. But, you know, I did find myself eventually going back into reporting, but I think in a somewhat different way to the way I did when I was a testosterone-fueled youngster. Try to put words to that. How different? Well, I'll give you an example. Say, I used to feel indestructible. When I started, I started going to hazardous places in my late 20s and right through my 30s. And I went, did a lot. I did everything that came up. Well, I take some risks looking back on it. And uh, I'll give you an exa a concrete example. During the, the wars of in Bosnia, uh, in former Yugoslavia, in, well, the Bosnia War was 92 to 95. Uh, I did things like there was a besieged city, Mostar. I walked in there across the mountains with the Bosnian army, spent time there. It was extremely dangerous. I mean, I did some reporting that I still think is some of the best I've done, and I'm glad I did it. And the, the reports I did were later actually accepted as evidence at war crimes okay. tribunals in The Hague. You know, I was pleased with what I did, but it was risky, and I had a, some very close calls. So I'll, I'll tell you, I decided I wouldn't go back into doing dangerous stuff. But after I did my couple of years presenting, I thought, actually, I'm, I wasn't a bad journalist before, and I'm sitting on the sofa making I'm jokes. bored now, you thought. <laughs> I, I probably went into it a bit young. I thought I had a bit more to offer. And uh, I did various non-hazardous jobs. I was Rome correspondent for the BBC. But then I was offered a job a couple of years later as Middle East editor, based in London, but traveling very widely in the region. And and the thing is, if, you, if you're in the Middle East, you've got to accept a certain degree of risk. And to start with, I tried to avoid that kind of stuff. But 2000, I'll tell you one specific moment, 2006, uh, this cameraman I've worked with for many years, an Australian guy, in fact, called Nick Millard, who's from Western Australia. 
I was working with him in Lebanon, in Beirut, in this big war that was going on in 2006. And he also had kids, and he wasn't all that keen anymore on dangerous stuff. But we were in Beirut, but we were invited down to the southern suburbs of the city, which is where the pro-Iranian group Hezbollah has its headquarters, which had been bombed to hell by the Israelis. And it was dangerous there. They were still bombing. And the Hezbollah press officer rang up and said, do you want to come down? And he looked at me and I said, oh, God, we're going to have to do it, aren't we? And he said, look, mate, if you're at a party, you can't stay in the kitchen. So I thought, okay. So we went there and we did it. And from there, I started sliding back into doing some more frontline reporting. And in, I mean, now at the BBC, I'm the international editor. And I've done a lot of time, spent a lot of time uh, in Ukraine in the last year, which has been at times very dangerous. But I do try and minimize any exposure, where, whereas before I might not have. Look, I'm... I'm keen to hear about what did not make it into the news, what your international desk, although you're now it by the sound of it, what your international desk back in London was not interested in hearing about. And obviously what I'm trying to tease out is things you saw that didn't fit the conflict scenario, the constant conflict scenario, I suppose, green shoots, things that were personal of the culture. Now, does that strike you too? Well, no. I mean, at the BBC, we have as correspondents... Uh, we have a lot of freedom to do what we want, basically. We say, well, this is a good story. We then say, you must go and do this or anything. It's not, but certainly not when you've been there as long as I have. I mean, I've been there nearly 40 years. So um, I've done loads of non violent stories over the years from the Middle East, political developments. And let's not forget 2011, the year of the so called Arab Spring, the Arab uprisings, mm. Mm. when there was incredible hope for change. The amazing hope. And unfortunately, there were counter-revolutions that followed that. And since then, since that year of incredible hope, in certainly the first half of 2011, things have really spiraled downwards. If you look at the big politics of it, yes, there's a lot of awful stuff that goes on. There's a real crisis of governance. Uh, there are authoritarians. There's corruption. There's foreign interference at times, the consequences of the 2003 invasion of Iraq, which still play out. I was just in Iraq. I only got back a week ago. I could see it. Um, but on an individual human level, there are loads of nice things that, that happen, great people and amazingly friendly and polite and wonderful cuisine, uh, amazing history, places to visit. There are still loads of places where you can go in the Middle East and have a great holiday. But the big macro picture, politically, I mean, for example, you so say you want to go to Egypt. Egypt, well, unparalleled history. Everybody knows about you know, the Valley of the Kings, the pyramids, and the amazing things you can see there. Cairo is the most extraordinary city. Um, it's got a medieval heart. And so it's it does rightfully attract tourists. But they have a dreadful regime which has locked up more than 50,000 people just for opposing it with a record of disappearing critics, with people who are found dead, uh, with also awful things that, that happen there. But you know, at the same time, people can go and visit and be probably relatively safe as long as you stay, you stay on the beaten track. 
So there are these contrasts. Yeah, can I ask you, listen, just tell listeners, uh, Jeremy Bowen is our guest, I'm delighted to say, the BBC's international editor, and we're talking about his new book on the Middle East. What about in, in terms of people's personal lives, could you see that changing? I mean, particularly, I suppose, around the Arab springtime, just the way families interacted, did they, the big hopes, I know they were dashed, but could you feel a shift or not? You could feel hope. But I was always a bit sceptical, I've got to be honest, because I was aware of the the fact that there are very entrenched elites and powerful groups in these countries who were not prepared to suddenly give up power. And seeing the euphoria that followed the fall of the longtime Egyptian president, Hosni Mubarak, in February of 2011, there were people who were thinking it might sort of become, I don't know, a bit like Sweden. Uh, but there was no chance that was ever going to happen. Too much poverty, but as well as that, the main reasons why that wasn't going to happen is that there were two very entrenched groups in society. One was the military, and the, which controls loads of the economy. The military in, in Egypt is not just about defending the country. It, it, you know, they build roads, they have property business, they do all kinds of things. Uh, they control, some people think, up to half the economy. And as well as that, there's the Muslim Brotherhood. And they were always on, going to be on a collision course, and that was what happened. Mm. And the military won, basically, at least for the time being. Look, last question, really. You've got this lovely line, instability is infectious. And it reminded me, there's a great Clive James quote, too, that polarisation mm. is like crack cocaine. You can never get enough of it once you, you, know, you yes. start experiencing it. <laughs> um, is, the, is the region condemned to that, do you honestly think, or not? Well... I think a few lessons I've taken from more than 30 years of being a reporter in the region. One, if there's going to be change, it's going to come from the people of the region. The invasion of 2003 showed you cannot impose change or democracy through the barrel of a gun and as a foreigner, first thing. Second of all, sadly, I don't think life is going to get better until the big problem of governance is sorted out, the authoritarians opening up society, the corrupt people being brought to book, legal systems being built that allow people to have contracts that are going to be honoured, you know, who can feel that they can go to the police and complain if there's a problem. Uh, and I think lastly, the Israeli-Palestinian problem needs to be dealt with because while it's been going for a long time, as sometimes it gets a bit ignored when it goes into what seems to be a holding pattern. It's like a, a cancer at the heart of the region. So I think if you can deal with that massive list of problems, life could be a lot better because the, the region's got great things going for it. The mm. history, the people, uh, the culture, and a lot of countries are, are rich because of oil. Look, thanks so much for joining us. It's been lovely to talk to you. It's a great pleasure, and thanks for asking me. Jeremy Bowen, his book is Making of the Modern Middle East, Pan Macmillan, and his podcast, The Front Lines of Journalism, on BBC Radio 4. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.